Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. We'll start today with Michigan House Speaker Pro Tem Lori Pahutsky, who will catch us up on budget talks in Lansing, Democratic priorities, and the progressive politics that have shaped this new Michigan Democratic majority. Then we're going to talk about Michigan from a national perspective. Two reports by the Center for American Progress about our efforts to shore up democracy and the way a deluge of federal money is going to change our state. That's next on Detroit Today. But first, the news from NPR. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've joined us. I'm also really glad to be back here in the host chair after a needed week away. I want to thank Nick Austin, one of the producers here on the show, for sitting in for me with you last week. So I really love when a little point of data or a little detail tells you something big about something else. So let's start with one today. During the first five months of the 2023 legislative session, Governor Gretchen Whitmer has signed 38 bills into law. Now, that may not be a record, but it's the consequences of those bills that's really remarkable. There are policy changes that we've already discussed on this show, like increasing the earned income tax credit from 6% to 30%, adding legal protections for citizens who are LGBTQ, repealing the right-to-work laws that were put into place during the previous administration of Governor Rick Snyder, and broadening background checks and registration requirements for firearms. I think it's really important to remember that in my lifetime, the Michigan legislature has not previously been able to pass substantive gun protection laws. This is all to say that the Democratic majority has been working, really working, and that that work is not close to being done. A little later in the hour, we're going to talk about a report from a national think tank about the ways that Michigan may benefit from a new windfall of public and private investment. We'll also talk about a report that really takes a look at the things that we've done here in Michigan to shore up democracy and democratic participation. Another thing we've talked quite a bit about on this show. But before we get to those subjects, we want to talk about some of the newer legislation that has passed the state house talk about the budget negotiations that are ongoing in Lansing and inquire about what's next for this legislature that is under the control of Democrats for the first time in nearly 40 years. To do that, we've got House Speaker Pro Tem Lori Pahutsky with us. Uh, Speaker Pro Tem, she is a progressive Democrat from Livonia. Uh, It's really great to have her here. Welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. 
So before we get into the recent bills that have passed, I want to talk about your district. Uh, You represent Livonia, which is a place that I'm old enough to remember uh, that it was it was really almost impossible to elect a Democrat to the state legislature. It's certainly still not a place that people would consider uh, 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 an easy win for uh, progressive uh, candidates, which is something that you are. So I want to talk a little about your election, your district, and I guess what's changing in Livonia. Sure. I mean, so redistricting changed a lot. You know, we went from having uh, really just just one representative. There was about one square mile that was in a different district. But for the most part, uh, I represented nearly all of Livonia. Uh, redistricting changed that. There are now three state representatives that represent various areas of Livonia. But back in 2018, when I won that first election, it was a huge shakeup. Uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, the district had been historically very conservative. Uh, and when I was out knocking doors, I, I saw that changing. The conversations that I, I was having uh, indicated to me that we had a chance. But in all honesty, when I first started running, I thought that I would maybe move the needle. You know, I thought that I would make it easier for someone else to flip that seat eventually. So, it took a long time for me to really uh, fully grasp the fact that no, we could we could really flip this, and I think it took other people even just a little bit longer <laughs> to <laughs> to think that we could. Uh, so, what are the things that you think was were able to connect you with voters who not so long ago? It would have really recoiled from some of the things that that you stand for and and believe. Is it a change in demographics, or is there a bridge? I guess that 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 you've been able to extend to voters who maybe don't agree with everything that you stand for and do, but were attracted to the idea of your leadership. I think it was a little bit of both. So the demographics are certainly changing. We have a lot more. Uh, young people coming into the district, a lot of younger families, and that was hugely beneficial. And there have been indications of that that study change, uh, you know, in, in the years since. You know, this past weekend we had our first ever Pride celebration in Livonia, which was huge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, probably not to a lot of other communities that have been doing it for a really long time, but um, it's a, a really strong indication that things are continuing to change. But to your point, I think that there was also historically not a real ground-focused campaign. So the fact that I knocked a ton of doors and said things that, you know, like you said, some people may not agree with, but they appreciated the fact that, one, I was on their doorstep asking what they thought. And even if they didn't agree with everything I was saying, they got an honest answer out of me. You know, for better or worse, I I have never been very good at uh, politicking and trying to gloss over exactly what I'm trying to get at. So I think that people found that a little refreshing. And a lot of people felt, you know, even if they might not agree with every single thing that I wanted to do when I got to Lansing, they at least knew that they were never going to get taken on a ride. They were going to know exactly what my priorities were. They would know 
how I planned on voting, how I did vote, and they knew that I would give them the actual rationale for why I voted a certain way. And I do think that people found that refreshing and appreciated it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to talk also about your role as Speaker Pro Tem, uh, the first Democrat to to hold that position in a really long time here uh, in Michigan. Uh, Give us a sense of what your and Speaker Joe Tate's leadership uh, looks like and and how you've had to, I guess, make the adjustment from being in the minority to being in charge and and to do it, you know, while you're accomplishing an awful lot of things in in a short window of time. We've talked with him about the pace uh, that you guys have set uh, there. I, I wonder what that all looks like from your chair. You know, I I really don't envy the first termers that came in, having never <laughs> been in the minority before, yeah, never being in the minority before and suddenly thrust into the majority. Because to your point, we have been moving at a breakneck pace. And that's because we have essentially 40 years of backlogged policy to try and get through. And we have two good years at a time. So we've been moving very, very quickly. And there was no learning curve for any of our new members. They were thrown in here. And, uh, you know, we everyone did their best to get everyone up to speed. But there's only so much time to work with. So, um, you know, we, we have priorities that we need to deliver on. There are things that we have been talking about for over a decade that we knew we needed to get to work on. And that didn't leave a whole lot of time to have anyone get adjusted, you know, either the new members or, you know, in in other cases, the speaker or myself. It, it was a very, very uh, quick adjustment that we had to make. So um, that doesn't mean that things were always smooth. You know, there were some bumps along the way, but uh, we're doing good work and and we're doing it as quickly as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking with uh, Lori Pohutsky. She is uh, a progressive Democrat from Livonia. She is the House Speaker pro tem. Uh, we're talking about the things that are going on in Lansing right now, uh, budget talks, uh, progressive bills that have already passed, some that are still to come, what the priorities look like with this new Democratic majority in Lansing, the first full Democratic majority in the legislature in almost 40 years. Would love to hear from you, the listeners, as well during this conversation. Give us a call and let us know what you make of what the Democrats are doing now that they have control in Lansing. What do you think they should be prioritizing next? And what are your biggest concerns as a Michigan resident? What are the things that maybe keep you up at night wondering about the future of our state? The number on the phones is always 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation uh, that way. Uh, I want to talk about uh, some policy things that are going on in Lansing right now, but I also want to want to talk of course about budget it is budget season in in Lansing uh, I, I think for a lot of people the the idea that Democrats have control of both houses and a Democratic governor suggests this should go easier than it has in the first few years of of, of Governor Whitmer's term at, at the same time you know uh, there there's a pretty broad, uh, set of views among the Democrats who make up 
that majority. And so, of course, there's some negotiating that that will go on. Uh, first, give us an update about where you think budget talks are, and then give us a sense of the things, the tensions that are that are present that have to be that have to be worked out even among Democrats. Sure. I, so we are on track to have the budget done, uh, you know, by the end of this month, I think. Uh, I don't sit on appropriations, blessedly. Uh, I'm <laughs> very relieved to not be on the appropriations committee. Uh, but, you know, uh, conference committees are, you know, getting ready to to meet. Uh, targets were already set and, and locked in uh, in the previous week. So we're, we're in a good place. And like you said, I fully expected this to go much more smoothly than it has in the past. And it certainly has. But uh, yeah, to your point, there are still priorities that everyone has that, you know, hopefully in a perfect world, everybody's budget priority, whether it be an in-district priority or whether it be increased funding for an existing program, whatever the case may be, in a perfect world, all of those priorities would make it into the final budget. But at the end of the day, we have a finite amount of funds to work with. Uh, so when I say that I don't envy the people on appropriations, I truly mean that because those are some really difficult conversations to have. They're difficult conversations that have had to you know, be had with me. I, I'm, I'm not immune from trying to advocate for things that don't make it into the final, final budget. Um, but you know, the first budget cycle that I went through was 2019, where it was dragged out until literally the last minute, and there were all manners of line item vetoes that came to pass. I am so relieved that that is not something that we have to worry about this time, and that everyone is in agreement on the broad strokes, and it's just the finer points that we need to work out. So I'm I'm really, really grateful that it's a much more smooth process this time. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about Policy, uh, lots of things going on, of course, in Lansing around policy and, and the agenda that the Democratic majority uh, has. I want to start with a new House bill that, if passed, is set to repeal a, 25, a 2015 Republican backlog that prevented local governments from regulating private businesses' wages and benefits. Uh, I, I feel like this is a real tension that is arising around some of the things that the Democratic majority is doing. There's uh, a lot of Republicans and conservatives I know who say that uh, that some of these some of these bills, some of these policies threaten business. They threaten the business friendliness of, of Michigan and may send us back to uh, a darker economic time. Uh, at the same time, of course, I know lots of Democrats and, and liberal Michiganders who are happy or happier to see the legislature siding with the workers and and ordinary folks who who need better opportunities. Uh, talk about this specific bill and then, I guess, put it in the context of that bigger tension. No, so to your point, this just prevents, uh, you know, local units of government from from harming workers. And we know that most people are, are not bad actors. No one really sets out with the intention of, of harming workers. But we have had a majority for at least the last decade, and in some instances longer than that, that really has not prioritized workers. So, you know, this bill and some of the other legislation we're working on is certainly not meant to harm businesses. 
And it is meant to make workers want to stay here in Michigan. Having businesses that want to come here does us no good if we have people that don't want to work for those businesses. And it's also worth noting that none of this is happening in a vacuum. You know, these bills that are coming forth to help support workers in this state are happening at the same time that we are passing legislation to help businesses that are also in this state. So if, if you just focus on one bill on its own, then you're kind of missing the rest of the picture because none of this is happening on its own. It's it's all happening in tandem and that's very, very intentional. We wanna make sure that businesses feel welcome and feel like this is a good place to uh, you know, put down roots. And we also want to make sure that workers have a fighting chance in this state because they really haven't in a long time. The, the decision to repeal right to work is the thing that I think has attracted the most criticism from business and some of its supporters. I have heard people say this is the death of, of economic growth in, in Michigan, that that allowing that to, to, to go away will also chase businesses away. How do you how do you answer that criticism? I wholeheartedly reject it. I don't think that making sure we have a level playing field between employers and employees is going to do uh, any lasting amount of harm. I think it might be an adjustment for some folks, and I don't say that lightly. Adjustments can be difficult, and particularly when you're running a business and overseeing you know, a, a large number of employees, I recognize that that can be very different uh, or difficult. But we are also in a different era than we were when right to work was repealed in terms of what businesses look like, uh, what jobs look like. And I think that we need to be rising to the occasion. And I think that, you know, I, I was never in favor of that right to work law. And I think that it is past time to repeal it. But I think that it, you know, in a, in a time where we are having trouble retaining workers and retaining talent in this state, that that was a no-brainer to repeal right to work. And I, I think it was long overdue. Mm. Uh, I, I also want to talk a bit about uh, transit. And we've got a question from Twitter. David on Twitter says, the RTA needs some attention. Using a property tax millage to fund local transit like SMART has been working, but regional transit needs a different funding sort source like a local sales tax. That would involve changes to the state constitution and uh, the RTA legislation. You are a Metro Detroiter. You struggle like the rest of us uh, to get around on public transit. Uh, it's something that's been true for all of us for most of our lives. Uh, give me your sense of what the opportunity is to, to do better by transit, either through the RTA or, uh, or through other kinds of changes like David is suggesting, maybe a local sales tax that helps fund uh, regional transit. Uh, wh what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. In my first term, there was legislation that we almost took a vote on and it it kind of got scuttled at the last minute uh, to deal with the RTA and to give communities the option to, you know, opt in and, and uh, kind of bring that issue back to the table. And I know that there are folks who are working on bringing that back um, and, and additionally, looking at some other things too, you know, the the kind of tri-county region uh, from, you know, back where I'm from, it's a very, very hot topic of conversation. And what's great is that we have communities that have uh, really robust transit systems 
and their elected representatives working with the areas that have consistently struggled to get that same type of public transit uh, and working together to try and find a solution that works for everybody. Um, so that is absolutely a topic of conversation. And we have some really, we, ha we have a really great dynamic group of legislators that are working on that from communities that have and communities that have not uh, to try and find a solution. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We're talking with uh, Lori Tpahatsky. She is the pro speaker pro tem in the House of Representatives in Lansing. We're talking about what's going on with the Democratic majority in Lansing and things like uh, the budget talks that uh, are going on. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, there are a bunch of hate crime bills that uh, have advanced their way out of a House committee, and these would protect people against violence or intimidation based on sexual orientation, ethnicity, or age. To someone who thinks people are already protected by such attacks, talk about why you think it's important to clarify and identify them as hate crimes. It's a real debate uh, in this area of the law. Should we be adding penalties specifically for hate crimes when it's already against the law to uh, commit violence or intimidation against folks? No, absolutely. And that's an argument that I um I I I understand. I I empathize with, you know, as someone who is trying to not increase criminal penalties uh writ large, that was something that I struggled with when this conversation first started. Uh what I can say is the bill sponsors have been very, very communicative with stakeholders and even with those of us within the caucus who had concerns about it. Um and and on the other side of that coin, an argument that I also empathize with is these crimes are still on the rise, even despite there being laws on the books to deal with them. Uh, you know, we we just saw last week that there was uh, someone from the UP who was attempting to uh, enact acts of violence against, I believe, a synagogue. So, you know, I, I understand there are already laws on the books, but there are a variety of issue areas where we have that same argument. You know, criminals are always going to break the law. I, I do think that the particular uh, climate that we're in right now is creating a need for uh, additional conversation around it. But it is not lost on me that, you know, in many ways we're trying to decrease criminal penalties and make the system more equitable. Um, and, you know, this is something that we do need to be very thoughtful about. Um, but again, I really applaud the bill sponsors for hearing those criticisms and doing their best to work them out. Yeah. Okay, uh, Lori Pohutsky, Speaker Pro Tem in the Michigan House of Representatives. It's really great to have you here with us. Uh, I'm going to hold you to it. You said the you think the budget will be done by the end of the month. Uh, we'll have to have you come back in July and, and report to how about how that all that all works out. That's a pretty I think that's a pretty optimistic forecast. But uh, I guess we'll see if uh, if you guys Sounds can get good. It done. All right. Uh, I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. When we come back, we are going to continue talking about Michigan and Michigan's politics. We're going to talk about both the ways that this state has strengthened democracy and democratic access, as well as the ways that more federal money that has shown up on our doorstep may change life for millions of us here 
in the state. Also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on Twitter. 313-577-1019 is the number. Call and tell us what you make of the changes we're experiencing here in Michigan in terms of our politics and our policies. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and be part of the show that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. half past the hour and this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've joined us. If you live here in Michigan, it sometimes may be difficult to realize just how much might be changing, some of it literally changing under our feet. It's not just the policies that are passing the state legislature. Through ballot initiatives and other measures, the state has been working to strengthen its small-D democracy. And also, with a windfall of new federal dollars, some people believe Michigan's economy could significantly improve in the near future, not to mention the infrastructure, the physical infrastructure that could change around us. Both of these things have been written about recently in separate reports by the Center for American Progress, a national progressive think tank. The first report is about how Michigan, quote, became a blueprint for strengthening democracy. The latter is about how Michigan is on the precipice of being transformed because of this new windfall of federal investment. How much of this is really not just true, but substantively important? How much will this change the way we live here in Michigan? And I think this is on everybody's mind. Specifically, how might Michigan's economy change for the better in the next 10 years? That's where we continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. And to talk about how Michigan might gain a lot of jobs soon and what the state needs to do to build its middle class, we've got Emily G. here. She is the Senior Vice President of Inclusive Growth at the Center for American Progress. Emily, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. Good morning, Stephen. Yeah. So uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, the Infrastructure Law, and the Chips and Science Act, these were all very big deals in Washington, and there are things that we've talked about before here on the show. But I want to start with you talking about why they will have such a big impact here in our state, in Michigan. Yes, so as you mentioned, there are three big pieces of economic legislation enacted uh, by Congress and signed by President Biden. Um, and our report talks about what these will mean for communities on a local level. And we've decided to focus on Michigan because it's a state where, you know, that has historically been the heart of, of American industry, specifically the auto industry. Um, and all the changes that unfolded from that, the development of the interstate highway system. And we think that this new economic transformation underpinned by this industrial policy in these three pieces of legislation um, will really be transformative, but also will revitalize, again, American industry and also think about how we uh, go about building infrastructure in this country. Um, let's talk specifically about, um, about e each of these. Uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, what is it, what is it about that, that uh, we here in Michigan should be cheering? So the Inflation Reduction Act is, frankly, the biggest 
investment the U.S. has ever made in addressing climate change. Uh, it will help us accelerate the transition to clean energy, um, including through uh, tax credits for households to invest in things like cleaner appliances. Um, and, you know, together with the other bills, we'll accelerate the overall industry level and household level transition to clean energy, including um, investments in solar and wind and electric vehicles. Um, and for the state of Michigan, that means that um, it's spurring investments in um, electric vehicle manufacturing, uh, including batteries. So one project that we looked at in our report was Ford's $3.5 billion investment in the Blue Oval Battery Park uh, out in Marshall, um, which will be the first lithium iron phosphate plant for EVs, um, EV batteries. And it's, you know, it's, it's one of many that's happening in the U.S., but we think it is uh, you know, it is emblematic of this transition that's happening um, to move us away from, uh, you know, burning carbon toward clean energy in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about the infrastructure law? That uh, I know that's a subject that we talk about a lot here on the show, especially in southeast Michigan, where we have really aging infrastructure that we have underinvested in for such a long time that the the tab for fixing it and updating it is is really staggering. I mean, it's billions, 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 billions of dollars. Uh, how does this new federal law help us out? So the, so the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act provides money for localities and states to upgrade infrastructure. Some of these are things that might be highly visible, like highways, um, I-375 um, coming down in Detroit, being replaced with more pedestrian and commerce-friendly infrastructure is one example. Um, it will also support uh, better water systems, both for uh, runoff and also for um, for drinking water to make sure that America, all Americans have access to safe drinking water. Um, and it will also support, um, again, with other pieces of this economic legislation and econ- uh, industrial strategy, um, a transition to clean energy by supporting uh, clean power generation, um, upgrades for the grid. Um, and these these pieces all work together to make America more competitive, but also improve our quality of life. Yeah, yeah. And the Chips and Science Act, which is uh, also something we've talked about, our, our elected representatives here from Michigan in Washington have really been focused uh, on this. It ties not only into... Uh, the developments that we see in the auto industry and the, the 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 need for stronger tech, but but of course this idea that we need to own more of it here in America and and maybe in Michigan. Yeah, so the Chips and Science Act, as the name suggests, is aimed at revamping the semiconductor industry. But I think it's not just about you know the semiconductors that are producing; it's also about how we do it. And so there are incentives in that bill. To make sure that people can get, um, you know, have good jobs, that they're paid fair wages, that they have, um, you know, crucial supports like childcare on site when they're making plants to manufacture chips. It's really an investment in American manufacturing and to reshoring advanced manufacturing to make America more competitive, make sure that we have good paying jobs here at home. Um, and it's also investment in, in skills for workers that they can carry out throughout their lives um, and be on a trajectory of being able to build, um, 
you know, build a stronger career, build wealth, and also to grow the middle class. Yeah. yeah. We're talking with uh, Emily G. She's Senior Vice President of Inclusive Growth at the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank. Uh, that think tank recently produced two reports on how Michigan has strengthened its democracy and the ways new federal investment may transform our state. We'd love to hear from you during the conversation as well. Call and let us know how you feel about the changes that we've made to voting and democratic participation here in Michigan. And you think these strengthen our democracy in our state. Uh, Also give us a sense of what you make of the opportunity from all the federal money that is uh, coming into Michigan right now. How should we be using that? How should we be trying to grow the Michigan economy? Should we be focusing on things like manufacturing, which have carried us for decades and decades? Or should we be switching to more of a knowledge-based economy? What kind of things would you like to see us investing in? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we can we can include you in the conversation that way. Uh, Emily, I want to talk about the focus in the report about Michigan and this federal money uh, on I three seventy five, which is a little spur in downtown Detroit that wiped out an African American business district and neighborhood. Many decades ago, we've now agreed to restore that that part of the city, at least get rid of uh, the freeway there and give the opportunity to, to create a new neighborhood. Uh, we talk about this on the show quite a bit. It's an exciting project. It, it's something that is, I think is an opportunity for us as a community. Why do you think it's such a big deal and how can its removal particularly spur our economy? So in the short run, I think the effects that you, you know, people in Detroit will be seeing is that there is, will be construction work to, uh, you know, literally take down this this highway, which was for decades the shortest interstate in the United States at less than a mile long. Um, and it's also a chance to you know, very visibly try to start righting a wrong, which is that when the highway was built back in the late 50s, early 60s, 130 million people back black people were displaced out of Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, which had been a thriving neighborhood with residents and commerce. Um, And so the hope is that by revitalizing cities and thoroughfares like this, we can build an environment that's better for residents, it's better for businesses, and that's better for the environment, too, frankly. I think, you know, and over the longer term, too, the hope is that we're, you know, again, we're spurring economic growth and we're creating communities that are better and safer to live in, um, that are friendlier for people stopping through to shop or dine or go to work. Um, And this is not, you know, Detroit is one example, but it's certainly not the only place where we are uh, rethinking, you know, as a country about what our infrastructure looks like in order to reconnect communities. Another example that we highlighted in our report is in Kalamazoo, where the Department of Transportation has uh, given about $12.5 million for Kalamazoo to change its traffic flow downtown to Mm -hmm. hopefully lead to a more vibrant environment down there. And that's about changing the zoning code and transportation network. Um, But let's talk about how much cities should be thinking about removing highways and 
connecting neighborhoods. Uh, As you point out, I-375 is just one example of pretty poor urban planning, uh, you know, even beyond uh, the the horrible effects this had for our African-American community here in the city. It's just it's just a, a nonsensical way to organize cities. There, there are lots of places, not just in Michigan, but all over the country, where we have the opportunity to rethink that. How, how serious should we be about that? So this is one of the largest investments we've made you know, across these three pieces of legislation since the interstate uh, highway uh, system was built in the mid-20th century. And so this is a huge investment to think about, um, you know, not just roads, but also you know, as, as you are thinking about redesigning uh, neighborhoods, whether it's big cities or small towns, also making sure that we have, you know, water infrastructure and we have power grid infrastructure to support uh, to support growth and support a better quality of life. So, um, you know, it's, it's I think a chance for, for mayors and governors and other, other local leaders to think about how to improve their communities. Um, and it's also creating a lot of, uh, you know, good construction jobs that will be, you know, will be, or, you know, for which prevailing wage needs to be paid. And hopefully, um, you know, a lot of it is, is also going to be union labor. Um, and we know that union membership has a key role uh, in helping people achieve a better quality of life and, um, and higher wages. Yeah. Okay, when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Emily G of the Center for American Progress. We're going to talk a little about their look at our changes to our democracy here in Michigan and how we have strengthened the opportunities for democratic participation. Also going to add another voice to the conversation, but want to get going with your voices, the listeners on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. As I said, you can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and you can be part of the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET brings you news about your neighborhood. WDET plays music from the Motor City. WDET amplifies the voices in our community. WDET is your public radio station. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm always glad that you have decided to join us. We're talking right now with Emily G, who is a senior vice president of inclusive growth at the Center for American Progress, a progressive think tank. Uh, they have two new reports out about Michigan. One takes a look at all the things that we've done to shore up democratic participation in our state. Lots of Uh, ballot initiatives and other kinds of things that we've changed to make sure that more people can vote and vote easily in our state. Uh, They also have taken a look at all of the federal money that's coming to Michigan and what effect it might have 
on our lives. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. I also want to add another voice to the conversation uh, as well. Uh, Ashley Masiolik is a research associate in the Structural Reform and Governance Department at the Center for American Progress. Ashley, welcome to Detroit Today as well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. So um, I, I, I want to talk quickly before we get to listeners about this idea of Michigan as a beacon of democracy. I love that idea. Uh, I, I think there are a lot of people uh, who are who are looking at us right now uh, nationwide, sometimes inside the state, we don't know as much about that. We're, we're busy fighting over it, and we don't realize that we've kind of stepped out to the fore. Uh, Emily, I'll give you the first crack at uh, talking to us about uh, how this all uh, looks to you, uh, and then we'll go to, to Ashley to talk about it as well. So I think what we see in this new industrial strategy is that um, it, it, it really it, it is a historically huge investment to um, improve advanced manufacturing here in the U.S. to transition us to clean energy and to job training. But it's also a chance for people to see that government can work and that government can unleash the, the potential of the private sector. And we also th- see throughout the country that when, you know, sort of small democratic processes work, whether it's voting um, to, to unionize as workers at a you know, Blue Word electric bus plant did, uh, a few weeks ago, or the Ultium Cells plant in Lordstown, Ohio, um, or providing public input to like, as people did in the Kalamazoo project that we talked about earlier, all those types of processes can make, uh, make, make public investment work better um, by gathering public input and allowing people to be part of the process and also making sure that uh, jobs are good jobs. Yeah. Uh, Ashley, uh, we have been on this journey for several years now in Michigan, and we've made some really big changes. Uh, I I still feel like we haven't seen all the effects of it, some of Mm -hmm. the things we're we're starting to realize some benefit from. But talk about, again, from your perspective, uh, what what makes us a leader in, in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. And you're right to say that you won't see all the changes immediately. It will take time. But one thing that makes Michigan a beacon of democracy change is how quickly some of these changes were implemented. So voters were able to pass um, a few proposals in 2018 and 2022 that really increased voter registration options, um, voting options, and it made it the ballot more accessible and people's voices were heard through that. And so it will take time, but some of these changes are really already measurable. So, for example, black voter registration rates are now on par with white voter registration rates. Um, The redistricting process in Michigan has improved drastically. That means that the state legislature is now more representative of the people's voices. So these really immediate changes are measurable now, but the long-lasting effects of them will be seen for a few years. And, yes, Michigan is the prime example of this. These quick changes haven't happened in other states, not in recent years. So it's really looking to them as an example to how to strengthen democracy, especially in a time when these issues are becoming more partisan and more um, divisive. But they're really not. They're what the voters want and what the people support. 
one of the things that uh, you guys have looked at is how the state has been able to close some racial gaps in voter participation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something else that I think we don't always take note of as people who live here and are are in the middle of all of it. Uh, Ashley, uh, talk just a little about what those numbers look like and why they have been shifting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Between 2018 and 2022, Black Michiganders, their voter registration rate and voter turnout rate increased drastically, both both by about 17%. Um, That change is not true of white Michiganders, and it's not true of Black voters across the United States as a whole. So Michigan is a unique example here. And by increasing voter registration options and voting options like early voting, mail-in ballots, Um, Those were able to capture black Michiganders in a way that they weren't captured before. And that really is a sign of a healthy democracy. So it means that both black and white voters in the state are able to vote and register to vote at the same rates, which is great. Mm -hmm. And it's not true, just to say it again, not true across the country as a whole. Yeah, uh, I want to take a couple calls here and uh, have our guests respond uh, to the, the, these listeners. Uh, Linda in Highland Park, uh, what's on your mind? Hi, Stephen. Hey. Um, I just wanted to comment that uh, I think the comment that uh, deconstructing the 375 is repairing a wrong that was done to residents is really, really disingenuous. I grew up in that area. My parents grew up in that area. I went to school in that area. I'm 75. Mm-hmm. So I remember what the uh, neighborhood was and what it became. The people that were removed from there are no longer there. And if they, the um, government truly wanted to right a wrong, they would do the repairs out in the neighborhoods where those people are now living. Also, I don't think that the city of Detroit got... Um, the fact that we don't have any African-American representatives in Congress, the redistricting mm-hmm. that the state did means the city of Detroit residents lost their voice. It has not improved. Uh, Linda. And that's all I wanted to tell Yeah, you. no, Linda, I really appreciate your, your call. I want to go back to your, your first point, which I think is really interesting. And I just want to make sure I have what you're saying right, that, that rather than trying to repair the neighborhood that was destroyed— and and uh, and sending you know which sent African Americans in particular uh, away from from a place that was their home. You're saying let's find those folks now and invest in the place that they are uh, as a way of of repairing what the damage that was done. Is that right, Linda? Well, that's not repairing the damage that was done. In order to repair the damage, you would have to improve the conditions where those people are now right. living. Right. Go find them and, uh, and, so and invest them. Some of been repaired. Yeah. The communities around Detroit where residents are that are in extreme disrepair with many abandoned buildings that is owned by Wayne County and the city, those are the areas I think that could do best with funding at this time, yeah. improving the lifestyles of the people yeah. that have been constantly uh, um, put in peril. Yeah. Uh, Linda, because, I, I, uh, and not that I don't think that 375 w- could not improve, but yeah. if we are repairing people and the people that were done damage to, the 
uh, repair needs to be done. We need to find them and repair that, repair their communities. Linda, I think that's a really interesting and important point. Uh, I want to get our guests to respond. Emily G, what do you, what do you say to that? Linda, thanks for the comment. I agree. I, I, I don't mean to suggest that, you know, I, that this one highway project can get anywhere near, um, you know, undoing the damage that was done. And I think that's, you know, the, the harm to that, that community is not something that we can, we can reverse. But what I do hope is that as these infrastructure projects are implemented, whether it's I-375 or other things around, that we don't make some of those similar mistakes that we did in the past that, uh, you know, undervalue communities that are existing or that displace people or cut communities in half. Um, and so I think this is this is a chance to rethink how we go about infrastructure and where we invest. Um, in fact, there is a you know a principle in the the Biden administration's um, climate investments called you know initiative called Justice Forty, um, and so they have been very intentional about making sure that at least forty percent of benefits for federal investments flow to communities that have been disadvantaged um, historically or underserved or are overburdened by pollution. And so as we think about, you know, not just infrastructure but also things like uh investing in cleaner water infrastructure and uh you know the tax credits that go for um clean energy are um you know are higher and incentivized to go into lower income neighborhoods. Um, I, you know, I, I hope that we will be able to make sure that this, these investments flow down to the communities that need the most. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Linda, I really do appreciate the call and uh, the really thoughtful ideas and, and comments there. Um, let's go back to the phones and go to Jack in Lincoln Park. Jack, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh-huh. I'd like to uh, say I agree with Linda, but let's take it a little bit further. In terms of 375, 375 is a vital uh, artery between the east and the west, and it is in the downtown area. If anything, it should be strengthened, maybe widened, because mm. oh, a lot goodness. of the traffic <laughs> that will go from east to west gets bottlenecked there, and that slows down the flow of traffic for everybody going east to west. Hmm. And instead of using the money to tear down 375, the queue line, which only goes to the new center area, mm-hmm. would probably be uh, beneficial if it were to go all the way to something like eight miles. Yeah, of course. They could put a parking so, ride. So, Jack I, don't, Jack, I don't want to cut you off, but we're going to run out of time. I think these are interesting ideas. I've got to say up front, I don't agree with widening the highway and, and doubling down on the mistake that I think we made from a planning perspective. But I do want to get our guests to to respond. Uh, Ashley uh, Masiolik, I'll give you a chance to talk about what Jack's, Jack's saying here. Sure. I actually might point it back to Emily, who focused more That's right. <clears throat> on um, the infrastructure, although yeah. I'm very happy to talk about democracy reform. Yeah. Uh, Emily, uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, talk about what Jack's saying. Should we double down on I-375? So, I, I, you know, I think this is a chance for us to rethink what we, you know, what we value in, in infrastructure and um, you know, the trade-offs that we have to make. And, you know, there, I think there is no... Some of these have no perfect solution, but you know the replacement will be a uh, you know a six-lane boulevard. 
And uh, one of the benefits is that there's new land available for development, as well as uh, as new two-way local roads that help connect that traffic flowing through there to local businesses in the area um, and local homes in the area instead of being a straight shot through. Yeah. I mean, I think there's no question that we need to do a lot more thinking about what should come after I-375 than we have so far. A six-lane road is not rebuilding a community. It's rebuilding a road. Uh, Emily G. and Ashley Masiolik, it was great to have both of you here from the Center for American Progress. Thanks for joining us on uh, Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. That's going to do it for us. Come back tomorrow and we'll have more great programming for you here on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.